your Bibles this morning, if you'd come with me to uh, John chapter 11, uh, we'll look at uh, at least the first 16 verses of uh, John chapter 11 this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, and Lord, that, um, Lord, during the circumstances of our life, you'd help us to, to navigate them in a way that uh, brings honor to Christ and uh, blesses you, Lord, and helps us to live a life that's pleasing unto you. And so, Lord, as we go to your word this morning, speak to our hearts, we pray uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to John chapter 11, which is kind of the midpoint in uh, John's gospel. And, uh, and in John chapter 11, we're going to see one of John's favorite things to do structurally is that uh, John likes the number seven and the number of completion. Uh, and um, we come to John chapter 11, and it's his, Jesus's seventh uh, sign miracle. And next week, we're going to look at one of the seven I am statements of Jesus. And you might be wondering, like, like what's his purpose uh, behind that. And um, if you'd come with me just as part of the introduction, we'll look at a little bit of the structure of John's gospel, seeing we're at the midway point. But if you looked at John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, uh, John uh, gives us some insight in why he writes the way he does. And, and certainly uh, the motivating factor, the inspiration behind all of that, the one that's directing all of his writing is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's moving John's heart and, and speaking to him, and John is responding to the work of the Holy Spirit and writing these things down for us. But it helps us to take a moment and say, well, what, what's John's purpose? Because it will help us to inform our own hearts of the nature and the purpose of Scripture so that we could maybe put our arms around those truths in a more effective way. And so in John chapter 20, verse 30, John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And so one of the things that we mentioned uh, last week is that, that there's about a three-month gap between chapter 10 and chapter 11, and we have to go to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They see the ministry of Jesus kind of in the same way uh, to fill in the gaps of those, of those periods of time because John has a very specific purpose and the purpose we find in verse 31. But these, out of all that Jesus did, these are written so that one, you may believe. And so John is calling for a responsive faith to God's word, the scriptures, the Bible that we have, God is, uh, John is calling for us to put our trust in Jesus, and he's going to demonstrate that through a variety of different ways. And one of the ways that John demonstrates that is through the miracles that Jesus does. And John gives us seven sign miracles, starting all the way back in John chapter 2. If you looked at John chapter 2, verse 11, he tells us that this is the first sign that Jesus did, and it was at a wedding feast when he turned 
water into grape juice. Yes? Oh, wine. Oh, that's it, yeah. So Jesus turned water into wine at that first as a sign that he is sovereign over all things and that all things he has created. He is the word, and you get the uh, John chapter 1, 1 through 4. And so, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so Jesus has come, and John has written about these seven signs. The first one's in John 2. The second one's in John chapter 4. It's the healing of the official son. In John chapter 5, we have that, that fellow that we know and can come to love. Uh, for 38 years, he was an invalid. He's at the pool trying to make it in, hoping that he's going to get healed. And Jesus comes to him. In John chapter 6, you get the feeding of the 5,000. In John chapter 6, you have walking on water. And then I, one of my favorites, if, if raising Lazarus from the dead isn't enough, but in John chapter 9, you have the man that was born blind from birth. And Jesus comes and restores his sight. And the man at the end just worships Jesus. And so all these are signs. They're they're meant to bring us, they're meant for a response of faith in our hearts and and a response where God glorifies himself and displays the deity of his son and, and the affections that the father has for the son. And so we come to John chapter 11. Come there with me, look at verse one. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. And it's important to note, we're going to note later in the text that Bethany geographically is important to the narrative of the text because it's just a short distance from Jerusalem, right? And we know that Jesus has left Jerusalem because on each one of these sign miracles that he did, something happened. And the religious leaders got more focused, more resolute to bring Jesus to the cross and to execute him. It's a good little insight there. We might think that, you know, our family and friends, if, oh, if God would only show them a miracle, then they turn their heart to the Lord. And that's not always true. And what we see in the, the narrative here through the Gospel of John is that seven times Jesus does a miraculous miracle. I think the first one would have been enough for me, or, or maybe the second or maybe the third, but it wasn't enough for the religious leaders. And as it says in Romans chapter 1, is that instead of believing, which was the purpose of the miracle, to display and manifest the Father's uh, mandate and call upon the Son, they, they closed up their hearts. And so the religious leaders were adamant, focused on bringing Christ to the cross, so Jesus removes himself. It's Bethany, a short walk to Jerusalem. Back to the text, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And so what we see from our text here is there's this little family. You have Lazarus, 
And I think, you know, I can't prove this, so you'll have to take me to task for it. But I think Lazarus was the middle-born child. And then you have Martha, who was the oldest, and you've got Mary, who's the youngest. Um, and if you've ever looked at, the, at how these three people operated, you can get some little insights. Now, I won't go too far with this, but you get some insight in, into birth order and what birth order children can be like. So come with there. Look at a, a little bit of insight in Luke chapter 10 for these, this little family. Uh, Luke chapter 10 gives us a little account of, of, uh, of Martha and Mary and, and the little home life they had together. Come to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed them into her, into her house. Now Martha welcome, welcoming, in, welcoming them into her home gives you the kind of insight that she's in charge, she may own the home, she's, she's that eld, eldest born child, and if you know what happens to every eldest born child, they are what kind of people? They are take charge people, you know, they're the people that are going to set the tone for the home, and, and, and they can be some, you know, like if you, if you only had one child, they, you know, the eldest born child makes you look good, you know, like Rebecca's not here, she's heavy with children right now, and uh, so I'll talk about her a little bit, but when, when Rebecca was six months old, guess what she did? She walked, Yeah. When she was nine, month old, nine months old, she began talking. At 12 months old, she was reading the Bible. Nah, I'm just joking with you guys. <laughs> but you're saying, oh my gosh, that's amazing, Pastor. <laughs> but eldest childs, I mean, they're, they're, they're something. They are very, like, I mean, if you only have one, I mean, they'll make, they'll, you walk around thinking like you, that you know everything about children. Then you have the second one. You go, oh my goodness, God help me. You know, and then you got families that they're all eldest children. Like if you ever want counsel on birth order and what, what families look like, you, should, you just talk to the knights. I mean, Alex Knight's the eldest born. Kim Knight's the eldest born. Ben, he's the eldest born. And you know what he's like? Like a little crazy. So El <laughs> anyway, I'll move on. I just can't help but milking this thing a little bit. Verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha being, you know, Martha being Martha was just, just distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Left me to serve alone? Tell her to get her act together and stop being a, a, a third-born sluggard, tell her then to, to help me. Now, verse 41 and 42 is important to understanding the text in 11. And it's also an important diagnostic tool that you could use if you're ever on a pastoral search committee. Like if you're ever looking for a pastor and you have to interview them, you know, and you have to hire someone, little diagnostic test to, to understand where their heart is at is just ask them to read this narrative. Just ask them to read it. Just kind of give me a color commentary. And when they come to verse 41, 
like listen to what they say. Do they read it like this? But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing's necessary, Martha, and I'm going to tell you what it is. If you're on that pastoral search committee, that pastor wannabe reads the text like that, I have, I have only one word for you. Run! Because that's not the heart. That's not the heart that we're going to see in 11. What we're going to see in 11 is this. Martha, Martha, come, come over here. You're just, you're anxious. But you know, Martha, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to let you know something. That Martha, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Martha, you are one of my lambs. And you know what? This, our relationship, nothing's going to take that away from you and I. You know, you find someone like that, you're likely to be shepherded, pastored, not driven. Come, to, come to back to 11. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And then in verse 2, we see something that's really important to the text. Really important to understanding life. And like when life comes and doesn't, things don't work out perhaps the way you want them to. Or, or you know, you're, you've asked the Lord for something, but it doesn't really kind of come together in, in the way you want it to. And, and you know, you prayed your magical prayer. You know, the fav- your favorite prayer that always gets God to do what you want him to do. Look at the text. It's in 2, verse 2. It says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Come to chapter 12 just to fill out who this little family, what this little family's like. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served. If you ever want to go to a good, you know, if, if you ever want to, like if you get multiple invitations to go out to dinner with people, always go to the person who's the eldest born. Like if you go to the eldest born's house for dinner, it's going to be sweet. Everything's going to be laid out. You're going to ask the person, um, what, can I, what can I bring? They're gonna, what are they going to tell you? Nothing. I got it all taken care of. And then you'll press them and you'll say, no, I really want to bring something. And they'll say, you know, just, I don't know, I don't know. Just bring something, you know, you know, I don't, no, don't worry about it. I got it all covered. And so, so this is Martha. Like some of you are under conviction right now. It's all right. You can be a Martha. You can be the eldest born. If you want to invite me over for dinner, I, you know, if I get multiple invitations, I'm going with the eldest because it's biblical. It's truth. Anyway, back to the text with me. So they gave a dinner for him there, and there Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. See, the, the, anyway, I'll stop. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Why? Because, he lo- because she loved Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. And John doesn't want us to forget that. 
Martha loved Jesus too, in her own way. Lazarus and Jesus were, they loved each other, they cared for each other. Verse three, so the sisters, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And the implication of this text is that he's ill, you love him, so do what? Help, help. We have seen you do all these signs. We have seen you do all these miracles. The one you love, um, he's ill. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Now, we already know from verse 14, Jesus knows what's going to happen to Lazarus if, it's not, if he's not already dead. The, the death is coming. But come back to verse 4 with me. But, he, but when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Drill down a little bit with me in this. There have been in our community a few believers who embrace the falsehood that God could never work through death or sickness or difficulties. And what they do to people who experience the loss of a loved one or sickness or difficulties in life, and we've had a few in our community, instead of bringing compassion, they bring a false doctrine that says, oh no, God would never use sickness our death to bring glorify to glorify himself. And what this text demonstrates is that is a simple falsehood, a false teaching, because one thing I know about the Lord is that he, he is sovereign in control of all things. And even when I can't figure out cognitively, intellectually what he's doing, I know this one thing to be true. He is good. He is always good. And he works out any purpose or any situation for his glory and my benefit. Amen. If you want another picture of this, uh, come with me to John chapter 9, verse 1. And he passed by and he saw a man blind from birth... And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works, but, but the purpose is that the works of God might be displayed in him. Come back to John chapter 11. Lazarus did not sin. Martha did not sin. Mary did not sin. And yet Lazarus is going to suffer death. And God is going to be glorified. 
you know, the message that we want to bring to people that have lost a loved one is not a message that could be typified or labeled or tagged as a faith word movement. The message that we want to bring to people is Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so Jesus does the unexpected. I, I, you love these. You love Martha. You love, look what Mary did, John tells us. And it gets even more challenging for all of us that have, have to have God as our, at our beckon. That, we, that, that God must do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. Back to the text. John reiterates in verse 5. Now Jesus did what? Say it with me. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. And what, what a great point of growth for us is that things may happen in our life but they don't, they are not indicative that God doesn't love us, just the opposite. God loves us and wants to do something through those things in our life to bring glory and honor to him and so that we would benefit from being sanctified or having a greater trust and a greater faith in him in the midst of the seeing through a glass darkly, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13. Back to the text. John reiterates the love that, Martha, that he has for Martha, reiterates the love that he has for her sister, and reiterates the love he has for who? Lazarus. So when he heard, verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, <laughs> oh man, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Jesus, shouldn't you get on the next, shouldn't you call an Uber? Like and get right there? But Jesus waits two days because he's not on a human timeline. He's, he's, he's on the Father's timeline and he has a purpose and we could look at the purpose in, verses, in verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may do what? So that you might believe. So that you would put your trust in me. So that you put your confidence in me. And many, many times in life, there's this gap. And I, and I would say it's, it, it, it's, it's got to be some of the most difficult periods of life where, you're, where you have a need and you're praying and there's this space. And that space is purposeful because God, 
either wants to do something different than your expectation. And oftentimes, that thing that's different involves your sanctification and your growth and trusting him and leaving what you prayed about on the altar rather than taking it back. Do you know what I mean by that? You pray a prayer, and metaphorically, you, 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 bring, you bring your need to Jesus, and you, you lay it at his feet. You put it at the altar, in a sense. And then six hours goes by, or five hours, or four, and you go, oh, I don't know if I can trust you. And then you go, and you grab a hold of that thing, and you say, oh, I'll work it out. As part of your notes, there's a little PDF at the end. It's a little book, booklet, written by Pastor Chuck Smith on effective prayer. It's a good read. I hope you take a look at it. Because when we pray and leave it at Jesus' feet, we want to leave it there. But there's a tendency in our heart to want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. And oftentimes, that is not what God's doing in our life. And that is the point of growth. Now, you all know I love my grandbabies, right? I love them. I care for them. I take care of their every need, especially if it torments their parents. It's one of the gifts grandparents have. And one of my grand, grandkids had an expectation for Pa. And, and, and the expectation was that this, the expectation of the grandchild was Pa buys donuts every time. But Pa didn't buy donuts this time. And what was the response of the child? <laughs> You didn't give me, you didn't give me munchkins. And I was so full of compassion for my granddaughter. Oh, for one of my grandchildren. And I said, Oh, come here, Depar. And I wrapped my arms around and I said, Let's cry together. <laughs> There's no munchkins today. And I, said, and I said, You know I love you, but there's no munchkins today. <laughs> We can understand that through a child's eyes, right? It's no munchkins today. And many times, isn't that the way we are? When you have a prayer, leave it at his feet. Trust him. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. And you know, many times, the plan and the purpose is so far better than what we would have asked for or expected. And that's what happens in the text. Come back to the text with me. Jesus answered, once again, uh, uh, thematically throughout the text, uh, thematically throughout John, uh, uh, the Father is always working and, and Jesus is working. The Father 
The son is always looking to the father, John chapter 5. The son is always looking to the father. The father is always showing the son what he wants to do. So that thematically is, is to work when it's the father's working. That's the metaphors here between light and darkness. So Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, boys, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him up. Now, in your notes, I developed this uh, uh, point that Jesus is not talking about soul sleep. The disciples are a little bit dull. They don't quite get it that Jesus is speaking in metaphors. And so Jesus has to just put it out to them. So come back to the text with me. Verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought it meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus had it told, and these are the apostles, by the way. You know, if you want to be encouraged in your faith, even though your faith may be shaken, just read about these apostles. They will always surprise you with their slowness and how many times Jesus has to speak plainly to them. Verse 14, (laughs) then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that what? Purpose of John as inspired by the Holy Spirit that you might believe. Same thing here. That the unexpected, Jesus operated unexpectedly. He created space. And in that space, there was an opportunity for growth. And it's the same way in your life and my life. Is that there'll be an event in our life. There'll be space. And then there'll be God's answer. And maturity comes, maturity comes by resting in Christ in that uncomfortable space. Courage comes as we put our trust in him in that space. Peace comes when we relinquish our control and let God lead. Confidence comes when we leave our prayer at the altar and see God do mighty works in that space where we struggle with. Verse 15, And for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. And then that's next week's teaching. John closes with a little thing about Thomas called the twin. He says to Jesus, to the the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. I mentioned at the beginning, Bethany shot walk to Jerusalem. Thomas we know as the doubter, Thomas we know by a lot of negativity, but in this one case, Thomas demonstrates incredible courage, casting his lot and his future with Jesus Christ. There's so many remarkable things about the disciples. They didn't have it all together, and neither do we. And in those spaces of time, where we're wondering, Lord, how are you going to work? What are you going to do? 
Just remember these simple truths. That God is good. He's always good. He is sovereign. He is always sovereign. And he will accomplish his good purposes in our life, in his time, and in his means, and in his way. And as we enter into that, we can have peace and we can have his joy in the midst of all of life. In the midst of those things, we glorify God by saying to him and praying to him, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. And Lord, give me grace and give me patience to walk with you while you shape and mold my heart to be more Christ-like. That, to a great degree, is what God is up to every day in our lives. Can you say amen?